and welcome to Business Leader Conversations, a new show where we'll be talking to interesting and inspirational figures from across the business world. Today, we'll be talking to Ollie Barrett, who has been labelled the most connected man in Britain. Ollie consistently strives to make life-changing introductions. He's a serial founder who enjoys making useful connections between people and ideas. He's co-founded several companies, including Clean and Cool, The Rainmakers, Tenor, and his latest campaign, Turn on the Subtitles, has already achieved major success in a very short period of time. Ollie is also the host of the Inside the Deal series presented by the FinCap Group, which we'll find out more about shortly. We're really glad to be talking to Ollie today. If you'd like to find out more about Business Leader, our print magazine or events network, please visit us at businessleader.co.uk. Ollie, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. Very nice to see you, Josh. I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I mentioned in the introduction that you were called uh, the most connected man in Britain. Um, I have to ask, how many contacts do you have on your phone at the moment? Oh, my goodness. You know, <laughs> I think I've lost count of that. That was a very generous uh, name that was used in an article when Wired magazine launched in the UK. But truth be told, I think I'd rather be one of the most connecting people because my love is actually making connections between ideas and uh, and people. The, the challenge with counting numbers is really we all know it's not about the quantity, it's about the quality. So on a serious note, I'm blessed to know people from all industries, backgrounds and across the UK, which is great because it helps you to make things happen. And that's really what it's all about. But a very nice of word to say that. It is something that comes up quite a bit when, when, when it's referenced to yourself. Um, when you hear that, do you kind of go, oh, here we go again? Or is it a title you kind of wear with a, with a, you know, a, a kind of badge of honour? Well, I think um, actually being described as connected tends to be seen as more of a compliment. Whereas, um, on the other hand, if you get described as a networker, that tends to be seen more of an insult. It's seen as a bit schmoozy, a bit pointless wandering around and so uh, happy to be connected but really I'd be even happier to be known as useful and that is the um, I guess the privilege the responsibility that comes with knowing some great people as you can put that to use you can point things out to people you can make introductions and you can shine a spotlight on interesting different organizations around the world and and, that, and that's the fun of it. So Ollie I just want to kind of rewind back to your childhood all right um, so what was life like for you growing up and did you ever feel yourself having uh, an interest in in the business world um, or was it not really even a consideration back then? Yeah so I grew up um, I had a very happy childhood I grew up in the UK my parents were hugely hospitable as a family so we would always be having guests to the house my father worked in hospitality so I think that sort of looking after people making them feel welcome and comfortable was very much in my upbringing and you can see that flowing through to my hosting even my first job was at Disney World in the US welcoming guests I wasn't dressed as Mickey Mouse just in case you're wondering um so for me yeah threw myself into uh, I guess non-academia most of the time sport music and actually I discovered what I really loved was helping to make things happen, whether that was bring a club together, put on a show, put on some sort of production. And in a weird way, even as a child, those seeds were sowed that, um, yes, happy to stand on stage from time to time. But actually, as an entrepreneur, I guess, in those early stages, understanding that my love in life was helping bring ingredients together. And then we kind of, you know, go, move on to university. Um, how, how was your experience at, at university? 
Well, uh, I did a very short stint till six months, actually, out at Disney World. And then off I went to Edinburgh University. In short, it was uh, it was short, actually. That would be the best way to describe it. I lasted a term and I really decided, you know, um, I'm not going to hack this for four years. Um, it didn't really light me up. Loved the people, loved the city, loved everything apart from the course, which happened to be French and Spanish. And I just thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to carry on with this. So I dropped out. And from there, I ended up um, taking a family uh, friend's advice to go and be what was known as a Redcoat entertainer, a Butlin Redcoat at a holiday resort in the UK. Um, and all that meant was being thrown in at the deep end, meeting people every single day. So again, the roots of loving meeting people from all parts of the world, particularly all parts of the UK, those were sown then. And eventually I went off to Leeds University, where I did a BBC trained course in broadcasting. Uh, editing, production, meanwhile doing student radio behind the scenes a lot of the time in my spare time. And to cut a very long story short, it was at Leeds that I had the idea to start my first business, ended up, would you believe, dropping out again. But by the time I dropped out, we were employing over 150 people in nine cities around the UK. So yes, I wouldn't call it a glittering academic career, but I wouldn't do anything differently because universities helped me to meet my best friends, to discover my loves in life and really spark my mind. Yeah, no, that's such an interesting point. I mean, if, if I said to, you know, kind of someone from the general public may not be in the in the business arena, if I said today on Business Leader Conversations, I'll be talking to someone who dropped out of not one, but two universities, you know, uh, many people would kind of label that as a bit of a failure. Um, but obviously, as you've said, you know, that kind of, you know, it kind of paved the way for where you are today. Um, you know, biz- in the business world, failure is very much seen as kind of the ultimate badge of honor. Um, in, in the people that you've come across, how important is failure? And do you think, you know, kind of attitudes need to be changed in the general public towards towards failure? Well, I think there's a great myth that um, careers are done in a straight line that there's some sort of vision that you have from a young age and you know off you go and actually the reality is they're far more zigzaggy a friend of mine calls them squiggly careers and very often they're the result of serendipity and uh, you know happy coincidences bumping into people so look um, I think the, the crucial thing for me is um, picking our moments to reflect I don't just mean publicly to the whole world I might even just mean internally or to friends and loved ones on what we learned from a particular experience and I, I still feel actually that the tendency in business tends to be to only really want to talk about failure, to use your words, many years after it's happened. So a good example for me, my first business went slightly catastrophically bust. Uh, It was a financial failure. And I was full of shame and embarrassment off the back of it. And truth be told, I don't think I've ever really talked openly enough about it. And uh, doing that would have probably been very good for me, but I think it would have helped some other people. I I think a far worse scenario would be a business community full of people who don't like their job, who don't want to get up in the morning because they don't feel that they're working on something meaningful. So for me, far better to experiment and experience things, learn from them, and then move on with the help of other people than never to have tried in the first place. No, that's, that's a really good point, Ollie. And, and hopping back to the schooling system in general, um, there's been chatter for years about how it may not be preparing youngsters in the right way, whether it's about teaching them about taxes or, uh, you know, many of them don't even know that running a business is an option for them. Um, do you think it's time for an overhaul of the schooling system uh, to better prepare children for the real world? Mm. I think there's massive opportunity to uh, transform the schooling system in the UK and, and across the world. And 
I think there are some amazing things happening already. For example, a PE teacher combining his love of maths with physical education, creating active maths. All of a sudden, it was a physical experience and the children's results went up. A charity that I support, Young Enterprise, doing the company program. So young people, secondary school pupils typically set up a company, form it, come up with amazing ideas all within a year. The scheme I started, Tenor, now over half a million children, we've given them 10 pounds or five pounds for primary school children, and they have a month to make money and make a difference. So I think that even beyond the curriculum, there are so many exciting opportunities for how we can engage young people and young minds. Um, I think what's at the core of that is two things, really. One, how do you affect the way a young person, a school pupil feels about themselves um, and about their future? Because right now we've got a big, big challenge because a lot of people feeling very uncertain, very demoralized about their own life chances. And we have to change that. We have to change their life chances. but We have to change the way they feel about them. Uh, but the second thing is this idea that too often school can leave pupils feeling that they're in the backseat, in the passenger seat of their own life. So any intervention, any activity we can help create, be it part of the curriculum, in the classroom, on the playing field, wherever it might be, that gives them the sense afterwards that they are in the driving seat of their own life, those experiences are gold dust and we should hunt them down all the time. In doing the research about you, it's glaringly obvious that there's more to you than just being a connector. Um, a lot of businesses and causes you've been involved with uh, have been set up to help other people and, and make their lives better. Uh, wh why is that so important to you? And is that always something you've wanted to do? Um it is hugely important to me. I mean, I, I think of myself as a serial co-founder. I've never started anything on my own, partly because uh, it would feel a bit uh, lonesome for me. And I enjoy doing it with other people. The third most obvious bit is that I have a very limited uh, number of things that I think I can do well. And everything else, I rely on brilliant uh, team members and co-founders to do. When I started Tenor, where we'd given 10,000 kids this £10 note, um, I felt that actually there was a simple idea that could be scaled up potentially to affect millions of people, which I think it will. Um, I then had this really transformational couple of years through Number 10 Downing Street on what was called the Council on Social Action. And around the table, you had, yes, you had charity leaders, but you also had the creator of the Eden Project. You had the managing partner of Accenture. And I suddenly realised, for me, I wanted to do more where very different organizations joined forces. And I think if you think about the biggest problems worth solving today, um, Business Leader covers lots of them, be that in health or education or financial education, or certainly in sustainability and climate change, the secret to their success will be in joining forces with people very different to the person that started it. So that has become my obsession, if you like. How do I play a useful role in creating those organizations, but also helping do my bit to forge the connections which encourage and promote their success? So for me, the ultimate byproduct is that an enterprise solves problems that are meaningful. Um, that's the first challenge. Um, the second obvious byproduct is, frankly, doing that is hugely enjoyable. It's very rewarding. So I do see it as quite a virtuous circle that feeds itself. That's such a fantastic point. And, and I, I want to kind of now talk a little bit more about um, one, of, one of your latest um, causes that you've been championing, uh, Turn on the Subtitles. Um, again, there's a schooling link to this. Um, it, it's a campaign that you set up with Henry Warren 
um, you know, it's it's been a source of major change so far. Could you just tell us a little bit more about Turn on the Subtitles and its kind of successes to date? Yeah, so Turn on the Subtitles, we're talking about subtitles, particularly on children's television, subtitles often known as captions. And it comes from a huge revelation, a sort of wow moment, that if you turn on subtitles, particularly for kids' TV, you hugely improve their reading. So this whole subject area tends to get called literacy. But actually, what we're talking about is helping kids to improve their reading. And the fact is, just in the UK, 30% of kids leave school not being proficient at reading. And that number's over 40% for children from disadvantaged backgrounds. So it just seemed to me, and I must confess, initially, it was read a newspaper article, saw a TED talk. And I thought, that idea is too powerful to keep to myself or tell my friends about. Um, So I got Henry involved, co-founder of the campaign, he was ex-Pearson. He'd started charities, educational organizations as well. And we said, let's do something about this together. On the one hand, to spread the word. So we've had huge media coverage, spokespeople, Sandy Toxvig, Rachel Riley, Philip Schofield, Stephen Fry. But then the, I guess, the business bit of it, I was very affected by a book I read called Nudge around behavioral economics. And what Nudge talks about is the default settings for anything being really important. How things start, which way a button or a switch gets flicked really matters. And this is a good example. So in TV, so we're talking about the broadcasters and the tech companies, normally the subtitles are off to start with and mum or dad have to turn them on. So our campaign and our mission with TOTS, Turn On The Subtitles, is to get these broadcasters and tech companies to turn them on by default so that mum or dad could turn them off. And I think if we can do that, this will be a Trojan horse, if you like, to be the biggest literacy project in the world. And we're making progress. Netflix have done a global trial. Sky and Warner Media and Viacom, owners of Channel 5 and Nickelodeon, have put subtitles on 500 of their most popular episodes. And we're in talks with the biggest companies in the world, including YouTube and Amazon. So watch this space. We're getting there. But it's one of those things in business that so much is complicated. And yet this is really simple. It's a way for business to get involved in making a difference. And ultimately, it affects lives. So I want to kind of switch gears a little bit now and talk about um, networking in other countries. All right. Obviously, uh, COVID has put the, you know, stopped you doing that a little bit. But um, you've spent a lot of time in uh, networking in other countries such as the US. Um, So kind of focusing on the US itself, are there any differences in the way that business is done in the US that you think should be brought over to the UK, whether that be a practice, a way of thinking or or otherwise? What, What have you found in your experience? I think the British-American relationship um, is unbelievably important. And it doesn't really matter who's in the White House. You know, the relationship between our two uh, peoples, if you like, uh, is incredibly warm. And having worked in the US a couple of times, I've also led a dozen or more privately run trade missions to the US. And what I notice is there is a culture of helpfulness, but Brits are helpful too. I just think it's a case of us doing things slightly differently. Too often when I take British businesses over to the US, and yes, I'm going to generalise, we hide our light under a bushel a little bit. Um, and uh, I've seen many companies who have real uh, credibility, but are, are, are very modest um, about that. Uh, I think the, uh, the Americans work incredibly long hours. They tend to take fewer holidays. Uh, they're very generous and they're not uh, not afraid to be openly uh, generous, particularly in their philanthropy, how they give money and support others. There's a really richly embedded mentoring culture 
in the US, particularly mentoring the next generation organizations like Big Brothers and Sisters, which I know that organizations here that I support, like One Million Mentors, are very keen uh, to learn from. I mean, the, the old cliche is about to come out, but I think that to an extent, everything is bigger in America, whether it's the cars, the buildings, to a certain extent, the personalities. And I guess one thing I think we can learn is about the size of ambition. Because for some of our most high potential businesses here in the UK, increasing your ambition without going completely off the rails doesn't necessarily cost a huge amount. But I believe it is absolutely linked to the outcomes that will follow. So if we can learn one thing from we're talking about America, your suggestion, but from other countries as well, but if we can learn one thing from the US, it's about massively increasing the size of our ambition. And by the way, there, I'm not talking about necessarily profits, revenue, headcount. I might just be talking about impact, scale, reach. So if I could take one thing, it would be that. How can we be inspired by all countries, including the US, to transform our ambition? Such a good point. It really is. Um, so, Oli, we, we have a, a feature on the show called Business Leaders Answer the Internet's Questions, all right? Um, <laughs> so we've we've scoured the internet and found you uh, a, a question, which I think is quite interesting with your experience. So I'm just going to throw it on screen quickly. Um, so here's a question from Reddit, all right? So this was quite an interesting one doing the research. It was very much framed around, uh, you know, not so much small businesses, but larger businesses. Um, so the question for you is, why are business business people so mean? And I think, that, you know, there's more of, here is kind of hinting at the fact that, you know, it's very clicky uh, business, you know, especially, you know, going back a few years, you know, how would you answer this question? And do you think it's kind of changed just in the years that you've been in, in the circles of business? Mm. Um, I think business people are so mean uh, because they are misunderstood. And that's my friendly way of saying to the questioner that uh, I would look again and I would think again. I mean, in the question is a massive generalization across millions of people. Um, and all I would say is firsthand and obviously anecdotally, I've seen this extraordinary wealth of generosity, of helpfulness. Clearly, we're in a opportune month to talk about this or opportune year. We've seen an unbelievable number of office hours, of mentoring, of offers of help and support. What I do think, though, is that all organisations have to really work hard to think how they're perceived by everyone around them, especially the wider world, because I think from a distance, they can seem impenetrable, they can seem cold, they can seem unfriendly. So that might go to how you express yourself on your website. Is it actually full of jargon and phrases that only an insider would understand? How accessible are you making the events you host? Are they as open as they could be? How about your office buildings? To what extent do you have an open house to allow people to come and have a look? Um, Are you living in some sort of ivory tower or do you have authentic links to your local community? Have you really thought hard about the resources that you have to make a difference. And I don't just mean money. It could be your time or your assets or your products and services. So um, this is a way of saying that I think businesses should all think harder about how they're perceived. But the trick is not then changing how you speak, but changing how you act. And um, so I guess the opposite of mean is generous. So my challenge, I guess, not to the questioner, but to business would be, how are you able to express your generosity of spirit and helpfulness uh, across 
the wider community, not just within business. So I'd say to our questioner, look again. And I'd say to um, all businesses, uh, don't be mean, but consider however non-mean or generous you might be, how confident are you that that is the perception of the world? That's a great answer. Thank you so much for that. Um, So two more questions for you. Um, What is the best advice you've ever received? Hmm. I mean, so many thoughts uh, coming to my mind in terms of advice. Uh, The cheesiest one, let's just get out that uh, that out of the way, is uh, that it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. And nice is seen as such a fluffy thing. But actually, in the most successful business leaders I've seen, yes, of course, you'll find some ruthless tyrants from time to time. But actually, being nice in business uh, matters enormously. So um, I'm not saying it's something I manage to achieve every hour of every day, but it's certainly a great piece of advice. Um, the other piece of advice, um, which might sound a little mystical, um, is do what you must, come what may. And I think that for anyone in business, just being able to um, understand that um, life is complex uh, and there might be decisions you make which fly in the face of stuff you've been told uh, is is really important to stay true to yourself. So those two pieces of advice absolutely uh, come back to my mind. Uh, If I might add one final one, the best piece of advice I would give because someone else gave it to me is don't be afraid to reach out to people and ask for them, ask them for a bit of help and advice along the way. You'll be amazed at who says yes. That's so poignant, especially in, in this day and age. Thank you for that. Uh, last question for you. Um, who is the most famous business person in your phone book? <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't, I don't know if they'd want me to say, I mean, I'm very, I'm very lucky to be connected, but increasingly, of course, I mean, I think it's a shame that we're not speaking on the phone as much as we were, but increasingly it's about being able to reach them in other ways. So some of the most intriguing conversations I have are with relatively well-known people in my WhatsApp or in my email or in my DMs. So uh, the world is changing. And uh, I think um, if, if you're lucky enough to be connected and thought of as well-connected, the one thing you must never become is indiscreet. Otherwise, everything will go down the plug hole. So there's my politician's answer. Straight out of the media handbook, that one. I appreciate it. Uh, so, uh, Ollie, uh, last thing before you go, um, you're hosting the Inside the Deal uh, series presented by the FinCap Group right here on uh, Business Leaders Channels. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the series and what people can expect from it? Yeah, this is something I'm really looking forward to. FinCap Group are brilliant at bringing people together. And I've seen it firsthand because they've helped numerous friends and colleagues, firstly, to sell their businesses, uh, secondly, to raise investment into their business, and uh, in a couple of cases, to list their companies as well. And what they do very, very well is bring people around a table to have a discussion. So with Inside the Deal, we will be talking about a big subject area, and that might be legal tech or healthcare. We've had one already with business leader on ed tech, education uh, technology. So I guess it's an opportunity to talk about the big picture and the big subjects. But crucially, we haven't got lots of commentators, if you like, around the table. In almost every case, the guests are also 
doing it day to day. So I'm going to be asking them about their firsthand experiences, their reflections, their lessons learned. So yes, we're talking about some very big industries, but we're also going inside a deal that could be an exit, it could be a flotation, it could be a big investment round, or even a huge deal between uh, a startup and a large corporate, just to unpick some of the personalities and some of the bigger issues behind it. So it's it's a really intriguing series and uh, I get to ask some of the questions. So when these sessions really come to life is when obviously people tune in, but also when they keep their questions firing in, keeps me on my toes, keeps the guests guessing as well. So that's inside the deal and I'm very much looking forward to it. Fantastic. Um, Ollie, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Do you have any kind of final words for our, our audience today? No, I think that um, what publishers and great publishers like Business Leader do is they shine a light on interesting people and organisations, but they also secretly create opportunities for people to connect with each other. So I encourage anyone to sort of take a step closer um, to the series, to Inside the Deal and to Business Leader in general, because actually you might come for the interesting story or the breaking piece of news, but actually an interesting byproduct might be you discover your next business partner, investor, client, or friend and colleague. So uh, I think publishers can be hidden connectors. So there's my there's my sort of final thought. I've seen it firsthand so many times and I think it's too good a secret to keep to myself. <laughs>